Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. From your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. And today, and we have a great episode of Soundbites ahead of us today, we're going to have a conversation today about an article called Our Failed Food Movement and talk about how factory farms are continuing to grow despite calls to end industrialized agriculture. But first, we're about to talk with John Fritz, who is the Washington correspondent for the Baltimore Sun, who wrote an interesting piece called Poultry Industry Critical of O'Malley's Stance on Biofuel. O'Malley, of course, running for the president's Democratic nomination uh, for U.S. president and is in Iowa, where most cannons would be at this moment, if not New Hampshire. John, good to talk to you. Welcome back. Thank you. So uh, I, I was trying to remember, and I was read your article, and I was going through some old stuff and thinking about, you know, what has O'Malley said before? The governor said it before about biofuels. This is semi-new territory for him. It is, and that's sort of to be expected, right? It's just more a federal issue, really, than a state issue. He did take some stances. He certainly had taken a lot of stances that have made environmentalists happy on uh, renewable energy, uh, so requiring that... Uh, the energy that we consume in Maryland, uh, that some portion of that come from solar and 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 wind, and he has uh, done some real real innovative and and leading stuff on that that's made environmentalists happy. But what he's been less um, forthcoming on, in part because he didn't have to be, is is this renewable fuel standard, which is far more controversial, uh, and I think divides environmentalists a little bit. They like the idea of um, biofuels, but they're not thrilled about biofuels that come from corn, namely ethanol, and that happens to be the largest renewable fuel that's out there right now. Well, it, it, it's, it, this is a, you know, candidates, no matter what they ever might have said before in the past and where it might have gone uh, for them, once they get to Iowa, things change. <laughs> this is true. It's an important <laughs> right? constituency. Corn is, it, corn is the largest crop uh, in Iowa, uh, and so it's a, it's a really big deal. They're extremely organized. They have former uh, governors, former senators that are involved with swaying the politicians who come through running for president. Uh, everybody meets with ethanol. In fact, uh, one of when Hillary Clinton uh, first went out on the road after she first announced, one of the first meetings she held was with the ethanol folks in Iowa. And so it's a very powerful constituency without question in that state. So but let, let's talk about the politics of this. I mean, this, 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 uh, Governor Martin O'Malley, for the most part, especially on the Purdue side, has had a very close relationship with that family. Um, and with people surrounding that family politically and legally, um, and took a really strong stance during the lawsuit the University of Maryland brought. Some farmers were upset with him because of his phosphorus management tool. But this is this is interesting because corn is also big in Maryland. It feeds poultry, and it's also a major crop here. And 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 so there's a, there's a this is the point of departure. And I wonder how hard a time O'Malley's having with this. In some sense, yeah, I think you're right. I think, uh, look, I think the relationship between O'Malley and poultry is always a little hard to dissect. I think some people would argue that he he worked pretty hard to court their favor and never really never really got it. Uh, there have been times when I think the administration was aligned with poultry. You mentioned the lawsuit. You know, there were these emails that I think came out, I forget when, maybe during the first term, uh, you know, that sort of showed him uh, trying to... Um, you know, at least keep the lines of communication open uh, with with uh, with the poultry industry out on the shore, and so I think I think it's fair to say that he he worked hard 
to uh, at least hear them, and uh, and there were policies that they liked. Um, and it was, you're right, the corn is a factor in Maryland, but it's not like poultry. Poultry is a huge deal uh, for the state, obviously. It's, it's by far the largest um, crop, if you can call it that, here in Maryland. And so any politician statewide is going to take care of those guys. Certainly uh, Senator Mikulski is another one who often is uh, talking about our chicken farmers here in Maryland. And so um, he was uh, pretty close, uh, at least tried to be pretty close with poultry. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting that they have very quickly uh, called this out and, and turned on him a little bit with it. Um, that's not unexpected uh, because this is a top issue for them. And uh, particularly my, my sense of this is not so much the farmers but, but the producers, which is namely Purdue. Uh, because my sense of this is that the farmers grow corn a little bit themselves and right. and so forth. Um, but what we're mainly talking about here is the producers, um, which, again, in Maryland, the big the big guy is, is Purdue. And so it's the producers, along with um, the American fuel and petrochemical manufacturers who make up this smarter fuel future group that oppose this because they don't they don't they, they don't want the they, they don't want the fuel st- renewable fuel standards in there at all. That's right. Right. Well, it's an interesting group. It's an interesting group of. It's right. It's, it's the producers. It's also the farmers that are actually a part of this group. This group is huge. Uh, it's got a lot of folks. It's also the environmentalists. There, there are a fair number of environmentalists who take issue, particularly with ethanol production. Right. So it's when I talked about the environmentalists being a little bit split on this. I think environmentalists like the idea of renewable fuel standard, but um, there's a lot of concern about the environmental impact from ethanol production. So. When O'Malley was first, interestingly, when O'Malley was first elected governor uh, and came in, uh, there was a, the transition committee report on environment. Um, there was a lot of talk about uh, renewable fuel standards and concern that if the administration, the Obama administration, continued to push renewable fuel standard, that that would lead to more corn crop production in Maryland. Environmentalists don't like that because corn is a quote unquote leaky. Uh, crop. Uh, so right. a lot of the, the fertilizer that gets put down for corn does not get absorbed by the plant, stays in the ground, and then when it rains, it, it runs into the bay, ultimately. Um, and so there's concern about ethanol uh, among environmentalists as well as the oil industry. So it's an interesting uh, bunch of folks. That said, uh, the renewable fuel standard, which is the broader thing, which includes other renewable fuels, um, that that is pretty widely uh, liked by environmental groups. So is this, is this, it, it, I mean, is it, is it, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out then. Is this like a, a semi-contradiction on the former governor's position since he wanted to ease fuel standards when he was mayor, a governor? I think that the the uh, poultry industry and the people who are opposed to it would, would characterize it that way. I'm not sure I would. I think it's, I think it's a more nuanced than that. I think that O'Malley was, uh, didn't say much about this, really, as governor. And now he's come out and taken this stance, very, I think, very strong stance, in support of it. So I think, it was, I think it's a little more nuanced. I'm not, uh, the, the industry would sell it as a flip-flop. I, I don't, my read on it is that that's not, it's not really that strong. It's more just that he was fairly quiet about it during governor, which isn't unexpected because the governor wouldn't really weigh into this issue. Uh, and now he has taken a stance that his home state industry really doesn't like. Uh, and that, oh, by the way, the, a very important constituency in the first nominating state in the nation, Iowa, really does like. Uh, so that's more, um, that's more where I think it is. There is there's one letter that the governor wrote uh, 
uh, during a drought in 2012 when corn prices were extraordinarily right. high. Uh, he and uh, Governor Markle of Delaware uh, sent a letter to the Obama administration asking, asking them to ease up a little bit uh, on the requirements from the renewable fuel standard out of concern about the high price of corn and the impact that was having on the poultry industry. But that letter, I think, was, was sort of specific and limited to the drought and didn't really reflect uh, O'Malley's overall stance. At least that's what O'Malley's aides say. And there's nothing really in the letter to indicate otherwise. And I, I guess this um, – I'm really interested in this, in, in the, both in terms of the environment and the question of the agriculture, because so much it seems – whether it's the agriculture here in Maryland and in, or whether it's in Iowa, is built around corn. I mean, it's built around corn because you have to feed the chickens, and it's built around corn because you have to feed the biofuel. It's not so much about feeding us; it's about feeding yeah, that's the industry. Right. I mean, that's right? why the that's right. That's why the chicken. That's why the poultry producers don't like this because the higher the price of corn, the more the more they have to spend on their feed. Uh, and again, it is true. I, you know, corn is. It's not an insignificant part of the state's agricultural economy. I forget where it ranks. I looked it up when I wrote the story. I think it was maybe, it's maybe third or fourth. It tends to be, you know, in the top five or ten of right. pretty much any state's agricultural uh, product. It just it just so happens that Maryland has this unique thing where poultry is so far and above. Um, not only is it ranked one, but the amount of money coming in, the amount of farm receipts coming in for poultry is just astronomically larger than corn in in this state. So what what are the so what is poultry saying? I mean, the, the, just curious. I mean, the, I mean, how much are they assuming or making us or, or, or saying to us that it's going to raise the price of their product? Yeah, I mean, so their statement they put it's already out, pretty uh, cheap. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, it's right? true. Uh, I think you know. I think they're throwing everything at the wall on this. So I think they're they're noting that. Uh, prices will go up. I don't know that they've said, you know, by how much exactly. Um, it kind of depends on a lot of different factors, right? So it's sort of hard to nail that down. It's both the renewable fuel standard and the yield for the crop in, in any given year and so forth. But, you know, they're arguing that, yeah, the price of chicken you throw on your grill is going to go up substantially uh, if we keep uh, raising uh, the amount of biofuel that gets that gets blended in. Uh, you know, they're also they're also making the environmental argument. Um, they're arguing that uh, look, you know, a lot of environmentalists have a problem with ethanol. But maybe you're saying Purdue argument. is making the environmental argument. Uh, the, the this group uh, that I think you mentioned, the group that includes the poultry folks and, and everything else, they will certainly point out smarter fuel uh, the, future. Yeah, they'll point. Yeah, exactly. They'll point out the concerns that some environmentalists have raised about. About right. corn uh, growth, um, <laughs> and also, you know, the other argument they're making is deals with, uh, believe it or not, uh, another uh, member of this coalition is uh, the boat motor industry. Apparently, there's some controversy about how well this fuel runs in uh, in motors uh, that that that, <laughs> that make boats go on the Chesapeake Bay and elsewhere. And so, uh, that's another point they talk about that it does damage to the engine. I, you know, I, look, I'm not an expert on that stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> The group told me it's true. The corn grower told me it's not true. I, you know, I guess we have to pull out our boat and put some gas in it to see. But, um, uh, you know, they're, they're throwing many different arguments at the wall about why they think this is a bad idea. Is... And it's also worth noting that sort of the, the broader context of this is that the Obama administration has proposed reducing the level of biofuel mixed into gasoline, right? And, and, and that's kind of what this is all about. Earlier this year, they proposed reducing that level. Uh, in part because of a recognition that the industry just isn't geared up enough yet to hit the targets 
that were set by Congress when they proposed this idea in 2005 and then later in 2007. So the Obama administration, in sort of a recognition that the industry isn't up to speed yet and can't meet the target set, has proposed reducing the mix of biofuels in gasoline. Uh, and that is part of what this is all about, right? So the industries, the poultry and other industries, very much like that idea, uh, and then and some others are not against it. O'Malley uh, came out and said he was against that, very specifically said that he thought that the target should continue to go up, should not be going down. I mean, it's, it's all very convoluted in some ways. When you kind of look at the back and forth of the argument about biofuels, that, that you know, like the argument without biofuels and then... then we have to have more barrels per year, and and that we have to use the uh, a, a other filler that is more which is MTBEs, which is dangerous to the environment. Yet, when I, I also read stat, I read this morning, thinking about your conversation, is that twenty three percent of all the American corn crop is produced for ethanol, but it only takes up uh, replaces four percent of the gasoline uh, cons, uh, consumption. So I mean, there's, right. there's, I mean, it's it's already mixed. And and it made me think that 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 in the world of industrial corn makes very strange bedfellows. <laughs> it is. It is mixed. You're right. It is. Uh, it's a fascinating thing because there's again there's parts of it that everybody likes and there's parts of it that people don't like and there's parts of it where I think there's a great deal of confusion. Frankly, even among the candidates, I think um, that that there are folks that aren't totally clear on this issue. Uh, but I think you know when these folks go through Iowa. Uh, they quickly have to get up to speed on it. Yeah, they do. It is an, it's an issue that's super important out there. I mean, I can see that Senator Sanders, Bernie Sanders, has not figured out what his position is yet. Um, the the governor and the and the and the secretary seem to have. What about the Republicans? They might, are they fairly pro biofuel? They are fairly pro. Yes, I think uh, <laughs> Republicans are are um, uh, many of them. I think there's actually been a few folks who have uh, suggested that hey, we need to maybe we need to rethink this. Um, I think. Um, but I think that nobody is speaking out very aggressively against it. Um, uh, most Republicans uh, have done the same thing Democrats have done. Clinton, uh, her stance comes from an editorial she wrote in the Des Moines Register um, in which she uh, talked a lot about uh, the renewable fuel standard but was careful not to really talk about the makeup of the fuel. She didn't really get into ethanol specifically. Um, and so some people were sort of reading the tea leaves there that – you know, maybe she was um, uh, leaving the options open for different kinds of fuel, ones that are more acceptable to the environmentalists. But that's not totally clear. O'Malley, right. you know, he went to an ethanol plant uh, and and stood there and held up corn grains and um, talked about <laughs> being opposed to the Obama administration's effort to lower the mix amount. So he's, he's pretty clear. And, yes, as you know, Sanders told a group uh, that he wasn't really sure about it. And I checked with the campaign again before writing that story, and their position remains that they're still looking into it. I think they're probably wrestling with uh, this this tug between you know the environmentalists, which is a core constituency for Democrats, uh, and and some of the other constituencies involved. Right, and I, yeah, all, and, all, and all that plays into it. And I, I mean, <laughs> I was going to make some bad pun, but I won't do it. See, <laughs> see how this all shucks out. But we'll. <laughs> There you go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> but I find it, I find it really fascinating watching this, watch, watching this, and you knowing it's mostly. I mean, the industry really wants to opposes this here, on the, but the farmers do not in many ways because, as you said, many farmers in the state of Maryland who may grow chickens for Purdue or Dyson or anybody Dyson or anybody else also grow corn. They right. Have, they have you know that to make ends meet. That's right. So but this is going to make their money go up no matter what happens. 
that there's a way to look at that. That's certainly true. And, and I think uh, I think that what happens is those farmers end up selling the corn back to Purdue often. Uh, so right. I think Purdue is really the one. Purdue and the other producers. It's not just Purdue. There's other folks um, in the region, but um, Purdue is the big 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 gun. Uh, I think um, I think you're right. I think that they're the ones that really get stuck with it more than anything. Well, it's always good to talk to you. This is really interesting. We'll keep we'll keep on the campaign trail with you over the coming months, obviously, and as the sound bites pieces, we'll bring you back for that as well. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Thanks. I am too. John Fritzy is the Washington correspondent for the Baltimore Sun. Uh, we'll be linking to the article on our pages on the web. Poultry industry critical for Mally Stanton Biofuel. John, thanks so much. Thank you. You are listening to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show. From your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We have to take a very brief break. On our way to break, we're hearing Wild Thing by the Trogs, which hit number one on this day in 1966. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on the Mark Steiner Show. I'm your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. That's Mustang Sally by Buddy Guy. Buddy Guy was born today in 1936. It's good to have you all here with us on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites, and we're going to have a more in-depth look at things we've been talking about for a long time here on the program, which has to do with the new food movement and factory farms in this country, uh, and the mythology on both sides, where this world is taking us, and why it's so difficult for us to see to put our hands around this intractable issue. We are joined by Carol Morrison once again, a transitional farmer who went from producing industrial contract chickens to her pasture-raised chickens at the Bird's Eye View Farm in Pocoboke City. Uh, and um, uh, expanding her operation there. Jacqueline Patterson is with us, who is director of the NAACP's Climate Justice Initiative, and Nathaniel Johnson, a food writer at Grist, who teaches at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Graduate School of Journalism, and author of All Natural, A Skeptic's Quest to Discover if the Natural Approach to Diet, Childbirth, Healing, and the Environment Really Keeps Us Healthier and Happier. So Nathaniel, Jackie, and Jacqueline, and Carol, welcome. Good to have you with us here. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you all with us. So let let me just begin with this. Food and Water Watch came out with this report that showed that that there's been this exponential growth um, in factory farming, in industrial agriculture in the United States. They pointed out that there's been a 20% growth in livestock between 2002 and 2012, and and, uh, uh, it's producing more manure, uh, about hundreds of millions of tons than they ever have in 2012. And dairy cows on, fa- on industrial farms um, have increased by half uh, and, the, and on and on and on. And, and at the, there's been a real growth here, despite the growth in what we call alternative agriculture or, or, or the food-to-table movement and organic farms uh, that are picking up and <clears throat> people are buying across the country and it's picking up steam everywhere. 
So there seems to be a contradiction here, Carol. I mean, between what we the 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 move to kind of deindustrialize agriculture, but the inability of organic agriculture and what we call the new food movement to really answer the questions about both the soil and the food people have to eat. What what's your analysis of what you think is happening here? Well, I think the biggest thing with industrial agriculture, uh, with them growing, is the uh, most anticipated uh, Pacific Trade Agreement. Um, I do know that in my area, the poultry industry is gearing up for that. Um, you know, so that is uh, has been an incentive here. Uh, poultry companies here are actually giving um, incentives, cash bonuses uh, for people to build new chicken houses. And what we're seeing here is not just your, you know, farm adding on a chicken house or two. Um, we are seeing what I call CAFO developers, and these are people who are coming in obviously have plenty of money um, buying up prime farmland and building these developments of chicken houses. Uh, you know, they have no no tie to the land, no tie to the communities. Um, it's just industrial chicken houses. Uh, you know, average size that we're seeing now, or I'll say on the low side, um, is, is six of these huge buildings, and these buildings can house up to 60,000 chickens apiece. So we're seeing this development going on. We're seeing farmland disappearing, and I do believe a lot of it um, has to do with the trade agreement. So so it seems, though, 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 Jacqueline, that that with this growth of of the of the organic movement, of, of, of farmers' markets, people really trying to find a different way of, of living and eating, that it's not having a dent on food production or how most of us have to buy our food. So, yes, I, you're right. They're, I'm excited by the, the, the uh, number of models and the, and the way that the concept of, of local food movement is taking off, but it, hasn't, it definitely hasn't reached... Scale, but I feel that the the trajectory and the pace is such that we're getting that more and more folks are looking at having local control, building local economies, strengthening local economies, and recognizing the important connection between um, growing food locally and both our health and our economy. So I'm certainly seeing a lot more interest and a lot more development along this, this stage, but it certainly hasn't reached scale yet. But I, I do think it's heading in that direction. And, so, and Nathaniel, I mean, I, 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 let me just give you some contradictions here. One of the articles that uh, that I read this morning was one that um, that Carol sent me. Uh, why everyone who's sure about food philosophy is wrong. And and you know, when we look at people who are trying to say buy cucumbers, and they and in, the, in the state of Maryland, Maryland and Maryland grown cucumbers, according to this article, uh, that produces seventy eight hundred pounds a year uh, per acre. In Florida, twenty six thousand per acre, um, and a lot of cucumbers brought here are brought, are, are grown uh, on these small farms who sell them at markets other places. So therein lies part of the issue that that people, when they go to buy their food, 
buy things from industrial agriculture, whether it's organic or non-organic, because the price is cheaper and kept that way. Right. That's that's the one major indicator. You know, that's the thing that you see when you go shopping. You see the price tag, and it's it's very hard um, to see any other uh, signal beyond that. Uh, and there's, that's that's the thing that's really going to affect what you buy. And then it's really hard to discriminate between all the marketing uh, that's surrounding the food and and what's real. Um, but the price tag, you know the price tag is real. And so that has a tremendous effect on what people actually do. And, and, and it does have an effect on what people, when people, when people will, will, uh, will use and, and the effect in the industry. And, I, and let's say, I heard what you're saying, Carol, about TPP and, and all the things that were in the Food and Water Watch report um, about, um, about what this government does to kind of ensure um, <laughs> that factory farms can grow and that, and, and that, and that there are the rules that kind of allow that kind of, of pollution to take place, all that exists. But there's something always been missing, and what's missing is how you how we eat without that, how we eat without the industrial farms. How is that possible unless we do something as radical as one of the articles is pointing out, of 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 stop or pulling back on what we or what we either grow and eat when it comes to meat, including the chickens and the eggs that you grow. Do you know what I'm saying? And people are saying that is part of the heart of the problem. Well, Mark, I'm I'm gonna kind of throw a monkey wrench into the whole works here. Well, I um, wouldn't expect nothing less of you. Far be it from me <laughs> to do anything like that. <laughs> um, sorry, folks. <laughs> uh, here locally, okay, just on my farm alone, um, I've had more and more people stopping by the farm to buy my eggs. And they are telling me, I had a lady just two days ago stop here to buy eggs. And she asked me why I was selling them so cheaply. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, your eggs are cheaper now than what they are down at Walmart. Um, You know, so that tells me right there that an excuse has been used across the country where, uh, you know, sadly we had the avian flu outbreak and so many laying hens were either died or euthanized, I mean, we're talking millions, that was the perfect excuse to raise egg prices and to continue raising them. Well, you know what? I'm just a small farmer here trying to make a living, and I'm making a hell of a living and don't need to raise my egg prices any higher because I'm satisfied with my return. How much do you sell your eggs for? Uh, if they pick them up at the farm, they get them for four dollars a dozen. Right, and most. So I am becoming competitive. Not that I have any thought in my mind that I can re- replace an industrial, com- you know, company and produce on the scale that they do. But for a localized food system, I can contribute to it. And, so, and, and, and I've always said, not that people, you know, don't need help with being fed around the world. If I can feed my neighbor, I'm happy. And I think we gear up too much for we have to feed the world. 
we we do we do have to feed the nation though, and I and I think that that four dollars a dozen is a reasonable price for eggs, uh, for well, a lot of people I in America. Mean, but but I'm still making money but, off of that. No, no, I understand. And so, so why do I need to rape the public? But but most people when they go to buy eggs like yours, um, at a farmer's market or in a supermarket, they're going to be charged six dollars a dozen. And who's going to pay six bucks this a dozen for eggs? And I would, I would put that down to depending on the area of the country that you're in, how hard it is to get the resources needed to produce that particular item of food, and what your costs are. I mean, it's not the same for. We don't get reduced prices on feed. We don't get reduced prices on anything. Um, we don't get subsidies. The industrial system is set up so it can't fail. The government highly subsidizes industrial agriculture. If we look at corn subsidies, at bean subsidies, um, you know, any of the grains, we look at the public health costs that are paid by taxpayers, we look at the environmental uh, cost that is paid by taxpayers, it's private industry that taxpayers are carrying. Nobody carries me. And yet they still are making money. Hand over fist. So, so let me ask this question. Though, and, and Jackie and then Nathan, please jump in. Uh, Nathaniel, just, mm-hmm. let me, so, so what, has to, what has to change to change the paradigm? I mean, when you look at Food and Water Watch's report um, mm-hmm. about the growth in in industrial farms in this country, and, and it's huge. I mean, it's exponential leaps. I mean, the number of hogs on a factory farm increased by one-third. Uh, average farms, farm size fell to 70% from 1997 to 2012. The number of broiler chickens on factory farms rose 80% in the same period Correct. to more than one billion. So, yep. but, but that's our diet in many ways, Jackie. And so the question is, what, so can that change, should it change? Would, how do we get there? Yes, so... Um, I think, so again, I, I, I do think it can change. I think it should change. And I think that the ways that, I mean, just taking some, a few examples, some of the concrete policy mechanisms that are being put into place to, to support more healthy eating from better local, locally grown sources include the fact that you can now take your food assistance program, um, card or, or, or vouchers or whatever in certain states and actually per- purchase from a farmer's market now. So that's a major kind of innovation that, that brings access to low-income folks who are able to go and buy healthy food to farmer's market. Now we just see a lot more, even in the way of kind of marketing around locally locally grown food and seeing that it's more of less of a kind of what people saw as a fad or a hippie notion, but more of a conversation <laughs> When I'm talking to community groups who are really talking about the importance of locally grown foods. Go on. I, I thought someone was trying to come no, in. No, go ahead. Finish, Jackie. Finish what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, I do feel that there is a, I do feel observed that there has been a culture shift and, and, and following that, some policy shifts and mechanisms for, for increasing access and that there has been more of a conversation where there's a, a, more, a, a greater embrace, definitely a ways to go of the importance of, of, of the local food movement as a, as a key kind of way that we should be shifting society. But, so I, I do feel like 
um, see the world, the increases relate to that. There's certainly um, factory farms and big ag continues to dominate. But bit by bit, just as, just as we see with the energy sector um, making that shift um, and, and now making that shift at scale, I see the food, um, food um, system following the same route. Mm-hmm. And Nathaniel said, so what, what do you, well, go ahead, Nathaniel, jump in. Well, I, I think, I mean, if Carolyn's right, nothing needs to change. I mean, economics, if she's, if she can undercut the price of Walmart without subsidies, um, then, I mean, that, that model will expand across the world. Um, the, I, I think that. That's always the case, though. That, that, that's how economics works. I mean, if you, if, if you, if. If there's, if, unless you have some secret formula that you're not willing to share with anybody else, there are plenty of people who are willing to, uh, to who'd be willing to make money, you know? Um, but the, the fact is that, you know, it, you may live in a strange place in New York, you know, right now, and the price of eggs for a dozen is $1.60. Um, and that's if you take out the subsidies uh, the government pays, it increases a bit, but not a whole bunch. You know, you're up to around $2. Um, so there's, there's a couple, I, I think the, the main failure of the food movement has been a real willingness to grapple with the realities of economics and to really understand that there's, there's got to be a dual focus here. You know, we do have to take into account the, um, the importance of improving the environment, but we also have a real duty to provide um, good food at affordable prices to low-income people. Um, and, and if we don't manage those trade-offs in a, re- in a reasonable way, um, we're, we're going to fail. Yeah, yes, we're seeing a big increase in local food, um, but we're seeing an even bigger increase in industrial uh, farming. And I wonder, I begin to wonder as I listen to the debates, whether people who support more healthy food that's locally controlled, that's not just industrially controlled by large corporations, whether we are th- throw the baby out with the bathwater by opposing everything that's genetically modified, that, 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 that you know, there, there are all kinds of issues around uh, the genetic, genetically modified corn and soy and the, the, the pesticide resistance and what that's doing to bees and what it's doing to the soil and to the food that, that goes to the animals that we eat and more. And those are real issues that we have to address. On the other hand, certain genetically modified the foods and other things being developed could enhance agriculture and make it easier to grow things and f- actually feed people. So, I mean, so, so it's a very complex thing. And do we make this GMO debate too simple? In our just in our in our opposition. Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think first of all, the the GMOs, uh, there's there's really no evidence that they're they're doing anything to bees, um, and you know there's there's been things floated about questions about animals, but you know there's been a huge review of animal health. You know, we've had millions and millions of animals in the U.S. eating GMOs for, for the last thirty years, and um, they've been healthy. Um, so you know, even the things that that look like they might be real issues um, may actually end up being end up being bathwater. Um, I, I mean, I do think I would like to just see the the conversation shift from GMOs, you know, this gigantic thing, to like what what breeding techniques do we want in our food system, and what kind of products, you know. 
will actually be useful? Do we want products that will help us reduce uh, pesticide spraying? Do we want, there's, you know, there's a um, um, tomato and pepper on the shelf right now at Florida State University um, that they made resistant to um, uh, fungus and, and disease, which which could reduce um, um, fungicide spraying um, by quite a bit. But it's just one of those things that, you know, the industry says, well, people are worried about this. We don't want to take it through the um, regulatory process. So, so, and, and, so, and, and Carol, what, what, how would you weigh in on that? Um, <clears throat> I, I kind of agree and I kind of disagree. Uh, I've, I've gotten mixed feelings on the GMOs. I'll, I'll be quite honest about it. And I'm not that knowledgeable. I do have some knowledge of it. I think my biggest question is, um, you know, of course we have animals that have been healthy from eating the GMO grains. But we have to remember that that animal lives a very short life. Does the meat from those animals have a a long-term effect on the people who consume that meat? And I don't think there is enough information there. Um, you know, we, we again, it's this instantaneous stuff. Well, look at the animals. They're healthy. Yeah, they are. But how long before they were slaughtered? Um, you know, it, uh, a chicken, it only takes seven weeks. So we really don't know what effect it had on the health of that chicken. Or, you know, a cow, what's it take, 18 months to, to feed out, to feed out um, a cow? So I don't think we have enough information there to make sound judgments to say it is okay, it's not okay. Yeah, that's right. I wouldn't, I, I'm, I'm not using the, the animal statistics to make a case um, no, about no, that. No, 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 no. I'm just saying, do we have the research there, and can it be shown that there are no long-term effects on the human population that consumes these things? Yeah, and it, of course that that can't be shown. You know that, and so the important thing is to uh, ask: is n- not is this safe? Because it's impossible to improve to prove that something is safe. Um, but whether it's as safe or more safe or less safe than the alternative, and we have lots of different breeding techniques that we're using right now for our, our crops and our animals, um, and one of the one of the real paradoxes that's occurred with um, the, all of the controversy around GMOs is that you know these big corporations have turned to alternative um, breeding techniques. Um, for instance, the use of mutagenesis, where we apply radioactivity to seeds or um, or mutagenic chemicals to seeds, um, has has increased in use quite a bit. And so, with very little regulation have, oversight, I might add, no regulation, right. no regulation. Right. Whereas right. Um, GMOs do do have uh, a level of regulation. So, I mean, rather than rather than simply saying again, GMOs or no GMOs, I think we should be looking at the specific case. You know, is this a product that we want? Is this useful for our food system? Will it help us bring good food to people? Um, 
who couldn't afford it otherwise will help us improve our environment and reduce uh, the dependency on fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions. And the same thing, I think, when we're looking at industrial agriculture, we need to be asking about these these trade-offs, not just, you know, is factory farming good or bad, but is it better or worse um, than the alternative? I, I think the thing is, is that, you know, as a, just as a consumer, I expect, to be there to be some level of trust there as to whether something is good for me or not. I think all consumers depend on our government to ensure that things are good for you. Um, and I don't see this happening because it it, it can't be said that it's good. So so the, the, you know the, I I want to come up take a different tact here for a moment as I try to cover a lot of ground here in the time we have together in this first parts of our conversation uh, that I hope is ongoing. But, but Jackie, I mean, one of the things that I, you know, when, when you look at the increasing amount of people in this country, especially in communities of color, that have fewer resources, less access to food, the question becomes how, what, what, the question was what kind of system do you have to develop, both in terms of public policy and in terms of farming, that's affected by that policy, that begins to feed the people that need to be fed in this country. Yes. So what kind of system do we need to have to be able to feed the people who need to be fed in this country? Right. That's what you said, right? Right. Yes. So, yes. I mean, I think that, so I think, and I guess I would add to that question, and, yeah, I, well, I think you said that in the way that they need to be fed, and I think that's key in terms of, um, making sure that the foods that people are eating are, have nutritional value and that they are not non-toxic. <laughs> and so this is one of the key questions that we're working with. As, as we see now that the community, of the communities we're working in are living in food deserts where they're more likely to get their food from a corner store, foods that largely have just literally no nutritional value whatsoever, then uh, certainly a farmer's market and even a supermarket where they can actually get fruits and vegetables. So when we're talking about food justice, we are very much um, looking for, A, those, the very examples I gave with being able to have across the board, not just in select states where folks can use their um, nutritional, their um, food supplement um or the food uh, assistance program credits to be able to go to farmers markets to get food. We also want to see more, 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 um, more uh, support for community-supported agriculture, so that there is a greater, so there's more access to to community-supported to to, um, to local foods. And so we want to see more. Um, more work with whether it's Department of Agriculture and Urban Areas, Department of Housing and Urban Development, where they're actively supporting um, mobile, the mobile food, uh, mobile, sorry, have, uh, farmers markets and, and, and so forth so that they're better developed. We're seeing in, in Washington, D.C., for example, there's a person who's actually looking to, who's coordinating and making sure that he can bring in folks from, from rural D.C., rural Maryland and rural, rural Virginia so that that food can come into the urban areas in D.C. who normally wouldn't even see a farmer's market. So we want to see more support for that kind of thing. And certainly these larger issues around the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and other the Farm Bill and other larger kind of macro-level policies 
Um, certainly major reform is needed there, but those are some of the policies that we're working on at the more local level. Can I just say, I mean, I think that there's there's a clear need to provide more um, food aid for people in this country um, that need it. Food is just a basic human right, and uh, everybody, it's, it, it's just a crime that people in the United States are uh, still food insecure. And, and providing enough food aid can just be such a massive um, supplement to, to people's incomes and allowing them to, to pay the rent and pay their medical bills if they're, um, if they're, if they're really struggling to do that. Um, and, but I think also on top of that, you know, they, we're sometimes a little bit quick in the, in the food movement, again, as I mentioned earlier, to, um, to push economics to the side. And we do have to acknowledge that industrial agriculture has, um, has made a real impact in lowering food prices uh, for people who, um, who couldn't afford it otherwise. You know, the fact that we're talking about uh, $2 a dozen eggs uh, versus $4 a dozen eggs, I mean, this, this, this is a big difference for people who are, um, who are living paycheck to paycheck, you know, and in terms of in terms of climate as well, we're talking about an increase in factory farmed animals. But you know, I was just I've been working on this series on writing about meat, and I was just shocked to find out that the the period where we had the most farm animals in this country was the early to mid 1900s. The dairy cattle herd peaked in 1944. There were 25.6 million uh, dairy cows, and now we have 9.2 million dairy cows in this country, and um, we're producing a third more milk than now than we were in 1944. So we've seen this massive increase in efficiency, which has meant a massive decrease in greenhouse gas emissions and a massive decrease in the price of milk. Um, so I'm, these things are, are not simple, but we do have to grapple with the, the fact that this system as, as uh, ugly as it is in many cases, is also providing some real benefits. And I, I guess, but you... Um, go ahead, Carol. Let me let you close this out. I, I think, too, with what you're saying, if, if we're going to uh, point out the, the benefits of industrialized agriculture, then we have to look at the real cost of what this great output really is. Absolutely. And is it worth the trade-off that we're doing right now to everything else just to have a great output for for a handful of companies in this country? Yeah, but I, I, absolutely. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. In the food movement, we talk an awful lot about the um, the costs and and very little about the benefits. And the benefits aren't just limited to a few. Companies. It's also limited to the people who are living paycheck to paycheck. It's also um, it's also uh, well expressed in, in a decrease in greenhouse gas emissions. I, the other I thing, I, though, I would add. Oh, go ahead. Jay. Okay, the other thing I'll add to there is that we that there's food justice, but incorporated within food justice is economic justice, and economic Absolutely. justice means that not only are we you know are we looking at prices, but we're actually looking at people being able to afford to buy their food from wherever they want to buy it from. And so and that's one of the reasons why we really are looking at strengthening local economies 
so that we're not seeing it. Yeah, and then and and in in building local food movements in that sense is also an economic justice driver. And I don't want to come across as a, as a you know a, a defender of industrial agriculture. I just I just feel like these these issues aren't brought up. I mean, Jackie, do you, I mean would you advocate for for going to four dollar eggs across the board? Well, so I mean, but I think I mean those kind of questions taken out of the context of a larger social justice movement, and I, that's the point that I was trying to make that that. That that I might I might advocate for five dollars a dozen if if we're actually having people who aren't necessarily dependent on food, food assistance to be able to get their food because they're we're all gainfully employed and we can choose where we get our food from that might be and, and that might be something that even the folks with low income would would say the same like I would rather pay more and actually have gainfully employed but I think we just need to look at it from a larger systemic and that's that's, um, that's what I mean. So and, and we, we're almost out of time. So let, let, let me kind of turn to Carol. I'm sorry, we're almost out of time. But Carol, go ahead, and we can make this the final thought. Go if ahead, we're going to talk about the the um, you know across the board uh, economics, let's say that who can afford what, and my story will be short. Um, as a contract industrial producer, I could not afford to go to the store and buy the chicken that I produce. So we need to take a look at, is the farmer making a living? Right. That is food justice as well when a farmer cannot afford to go and buy what they are producing. So, I mean, that, I think we're getting to the, to the heart of, of some of the matter here, and I think that and a lot of this is out of everybody's out of the hands of the farmer or the consumer. And really, oh, I agree. And, and really is in the hands of those who contort or, or write and create the policies that allow different agricultures to grow or not. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that to me is the center of it all. I mean, we would, the, the, because cause industrial agriculture, other agriculture didn't just form itself out of the, uh, out of whole cloth or out of, uh, out of the ether. I mean, part of it was public policy that allowed things to grow, and public policy doesn't public policy mm-hmm. have a lot to do with what the future will look like. Oh, I definitely think so. However, you think that future should be designed, right? So, I mean, I think I think we have we have if if we really wanted to do um, kind of the, the food utopia that I'd like to see would be um, where we we make. Um, food a human right, and we're and we make it a commons rather that that this is rather than it being commodity, um, uh, subject to economics that this that it's something that we all get um, regardless of our income level. But that that is just never going to happen. I mean, <laughs> we're we're talking about utopian politics rather than um, democratic well, politics. Utopia well, is a good well, vision well, to hold in the future, but. But let me push that a little bit further as we end this. I mean, but Jackie, uh, whether push the question whether it really is utopia. I mean, when we're talking about when you watch the f- food, the, the desire for affordable and healthy food growing in the poorest neighborhoods, along with the people who already are buying it in middle class, not from middle class neighborhoods that are mostly uh, white. Um, if that comes together in, in some kind of the, there is power there in terms of moving a ship to say that we're powerless to change it, I think. Um, is also kind of a, a, a mistake, Jackie. 
Yeah, and I mean, cause I've seen, I mean, I'm seeing it happen in a small place, and I guess that's the reason why I can talk about it in a way that isn't necessarily utopian, but it's, it's what I've actually seen. Although, certainly, this is, these are small microcosms within a much larger system, and they don't necessarily all add up to a large system. But I've seen from the landslide community in Pittsburgh to small communities in Kansas City, where folks are growing their own food, they are they have chicken coops where they're you know they're raising their own chickens, where there's um, where there's farmers markets that are you know where local farmers are all coming together and providing food not only to the communities but to schools. So I'm seeing I'm seeing this already, and I and I and I can only I can only um, work on making sure that it goes to scale. Right now, I'm sending at this moment an email to all of our folks with the assistance the EPA is offering through their local food, local places program where they're providing $8,000 in um, technical assistance to communities around doing local food programs, or $800,000, I'm sorry, uh, between EPA, USDA, CDC, and, and others. So I, and I, and I want to see more of those policies in place because I don't necessarily think it's, I think we can actually get closer to it even if it's utopia to imagine that that becomes the norm. So. Well, th- 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 there's so much more to go through here, but I do hope that um, that um, that you all will agree to come back for continuing discussions as we kind of wrestle with where the future is going. You all are kind of serious activists, deep thinkers, and, and have been involved in this for a long time. And, uh, and I want to thank Carol Morrison, who uh, at, at Bird's Eye View Farm who in Pocomoke who has shown that you can walk out of the industrial system and create a world uh, on the land that you have uh, and took great risk to do it and has done it. She and her husband. And Carol, great to have you with us as usual. Thank you so much. Um, always good to have you with us. And Jackie Patterson, Director at NAAC Climate Change Justice Initiative. Uh, and uh, always great to have you with us as well, Jackie, to bring uh, your insights and the work that you do. And Nathaniel Johnson, Writes for Grist, but also is, of course, a professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Journalism and wrote the book All Natural, Skeptics' Quest to Discover if the Natural Approach to Diet, Childbirth, Healing, and Environment Really Keeps Us Healthier and Happier. Long title, but good book. Nathaniel. (laughs) (laughs) You have to content the title. (laughs) Really, I know, right? (laughs) Nathaniel, thanks so much once again to have you with us. Thank you all so much. Thanks so much. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Delmarva is Christopher Rank. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. For Public Radio, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.